You're listening to What Goes On Here, and I'm Sam Walker. Whoever we are, and whatever we do, we all have moments when we feel like we don't quite fit with the world around us. What Goes On Here is where you can listen to real stories of people who at times couldn't see a way forward, people who found themselves stuck, maybe in a life they never imagined would be theirs, people who had to face their fears, face themselves, but they changed and change lives of people around them too. Episode 6, Matthew. Matthew Sides, an award-winning author, journalist and broadcaster. He was also the England table tennis number one for almost a decade, three times Commonwealth champion and represented Great Britain in an Olympic Games, not once, but twice. Table tennis was his career, but also his passion. Love's definitely the right word. I've been in love with the game and I enjoy playing, I love watching. I even enjoyed commentating on it when I used to do that. Yet at the most crucial moment in his career, after thousands of hours of practice, literally decades of dedication and with the whole world watching, the unthinkable happened. I choked. I got under the lights and I fell apart. When you've been working your whole life towards one moment and at that moment you fail, what happens next? When you're defined by something and it's the one thing you can no longer do, how do you move on? No, I was inconsolable. Every morning, I think, for for weeks to come, there was that, that horrific moment. What's left? What do I do now? When did you first fall in love with table tennis? Do you know, it, it was a sort of a gradual falling in love, and, and love's definitely the right word. Uh, table tennis, although not as high profile as tennis and football, is very intricate. The spins are, are fascinating. There's lots of sort of covert features of the game that as an eight, nine-year-old, when I started playing actually in a garage at home, um, intrigued me. And from then really until now, I've, I've been in love with the game and I enjoy playing, I love watching. I even enjoyed commentating on it when I used to do that. Um, but definitely I'd pin it down to eight or nine years old when my parents, for reasons they still can't fully explain, <laughs> bought a table, stuck it in our very small garage, or smallish garage, and me and my older brother, two years older, we played, we duelled, we competed, and we gradually improved. I mean, there'll be so many young children who fall in love with sport. And 99 times out of 100, of course, that love affair tends to go just one way. And perhaps they don't display that talent or display that aptitude. At what point in your playing with your brother in the garage did you realise or somebody realise there's something here? Well, it actually took quite a while. I mean, we had a lot of what you might call hidden advantages. By by the time we turned up at our local primary school, Andy and I had already practised for, you know, a a thousand hours plus. So when the primary school teacher had a club after school, he thought, goodness me, these two kids are fantastic. But what he didn't realise is we'd been (laughs) clocking up lots of very good practice. And this is the other extraordinary bit of good fortune. That teacher, Peter Charters, um, was the chairman of the England Selectors um, and widely regarded, probably still to this day, as Britain's greatest ever table tennis coach. So having clocked up decent practice, we then suddenly arrive with this brilliant coach who had a club 
very near the school, which was a purpose-built table tennis club, and it was open all the time, and everybody on the street had a set of keys, so we went before school, after school, weekends, um, and over a reasonably long period of time, it wasn't just Andy and I, but a, a lot of kids on that street became exceptional players. Which is incredible to think, isn't it? I mean, around the world, how many people have heard of Reading, a small <laughs> town in, in the south of England, and yet to pin it down to this one street, and essentially one man... Yes. It's amazing. Well, Peach, I've spoke to many times since, and he said, you know, if you have a single postcode with fantastic opportunities, good facilities, and a a world-class coach, you will create great athletes in virtually any sport. And table tennis, I mean, it's still very well known in that neck of the woods. Pete, um, I guess he must be in his early to mid-70s. I hope he won't hate me for saying <laughs> that on air. Um, he is still, like me, in love with the game. And it was a real phenomenon, and we were blessed, really, with opportunities that very few other people had. You mentioned, though, the thousand, casually, the thousand plus hours of training you'd put in before you reached double figures, before the age of 10. You'd already put this phenomenal effort in. Did it feel like a chore? Did it feel like a slog ever? Occasionally, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it didn't feel like practice. It felt like passion. It felt like doing the thing that one wanted to do. Mm. It wasn't like somebody playing the violin and having to be coerced um, to the music teacher. Um, for me, table tennis was the thing that I wanted to do. So when my parents would say, you're going to go and practice today, I'd say, goodness me, I, yes, I am. Yeah. I didn't need that pushing. <laughs> Every now and again, though, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, when you find that you're playing against somebody who's finding your weaknesses and making it tough for you, you know, it could be demanding. And physically, certainly when I got into my early to mid-teens, we would train very, very hard. I, I wouldn't say that it was effortless. It could be tough, but I don't think I ever lost that spark, that mm. sense of passion. And I think that is very significant when people reach the top. They, they do find the activity that they eventually excel in inherently fascinating. Being great at your primary school is very, very different, of course, than being great on a, on a, a larger local level, let alone a national level. How... How did that climb progress? Well, we started playing at this local club, the Omega Club, where, as I said, you had a purpose-filled club very near where we lived. Um, and it was tough at the beginning. I, I had a lot of first-round defeats when we played competitions, and it opened my eyes, really, to the fact that being good in Silverdale Road wasn't quite enough for being good <laughs> at the county or a national level. Um, but I carried on striving. Pete Chard has always said to us that failure is part and parcel of learning. And I think that meant that I wasn't quite as demotivated by defeats as perhaps some other people were. And the other thing I had, I think, which was very important, is an older brother who was pulling me along. He was a bit better than me. So every time I practiced with him, I was being stretched. And that, I think, helped me to improve a bit faster. And I guess by sort of my early teens it was pretty clear that I was reaching national level uh, and then I had a big decision you know in the build-up to my O-levels about whether to really go for it and I decided to go for it. Now this might be the start of then an absolutely incredible story but everyone knows that success of course has bumps along the way and there you are at sort of 15, 16 O-level years and it was only a couple of years later actually when you were faced with an even bigger decision because your family 
still saw table tennis perhaps as something you should do on the side, perhaps as a hobby despite your success. They wanted you to go to university. Yes, that's very true. My father in particular, he um, was born in India, moved to Pakistan after the partition. There's a very powerful uh, work ethic when it comes to education um, in his family and in that nation. And when after my O-levels, I said, look, Dad, I want to play table tennis full-time. He was pretty aghast. I think part of the reason was that my brother, Andy, who I mentioned already, got injured, and Uh. he had put a lot of his eggs in that one basket. And my dad was like, you know, you need an insurance policy. Education is very important. You're not going to be able to play table tennis for the rest of your life. And it was a really difficult conversation with him to say, you know what, I I need to do this. And so I did leave school, and I started playing full-time table tennis. And it was only later... Um, about four years later when I thought, you know what, Dad was right, I do need an education. I was still training very hard. I was playing on the circuit. I had a club in the south of France. But it was at that point that I decided to teach myself my A-levels <laughs> and then um, uh, apply to university. Did it feel a bit like head was winning over heart at that stage? In terms of going back to university? Yeah. No, because something really odd happened. I was playing table tennis for a club in Sweden and for some reason, slightly inexplicably, I became very interested in economics. All, all of the news stories were about inflation. And I thought, well, if inflation's such a problem, why don't we set a law that obliges shops to not increase their price? They have to keep stapling the same price on their goods and services. That way you eliminate price rises. And I said this to my dad, you know, I think I've got a solution to the problem of inflation. <laughs> and he said, look, if you start fixing prices, you'll create black markets. And I was like, my goodness, that sounds quite interesting. And I said, look, how do I learn more about this? He said, the subject is economics. You need to get a textbook. And he sent me a textbook. And instead of reading it grudgingly, you know what I mean? I read it and I really wanted to understand it. And the information, it's like it was metabolized instantly by my brain. I got through the book really fast. I was training during the day, reading the book in the evenings. And I had an appetite to carry on reading. And then when I came back to uh, from Stockholm, back to to London, where my parents were living for for, for Christmas, I applied to take an A-level and... To my great surprise and my dad's delight, I got an A. And then after that, he said, look, you know, you, you should apply to university. And, and I did PPE at Oxford. And once again, I'm fascinated in those subjects. Two of my books are, are, are about yeah. the sort of things that I learned at university. And that has been sort of, if you like, the twin passion for me, sport and the PP and the E. So with a place at university secured and the chance to continue with his table tennis career, everything seemed rosy. But then Matthew's table tennis coach had different ideas and he said he needed to choose. Gosh, that's true. You're, you've done some research here. You know, I did. <laughs> I got a letter from, from Don Parker, who's still very involved in sport. And he said, look, you go to university. That's absolutely right. When I got the offer from Oxford, he said, doing a full-time university degree is incompatible with the demands of international sport. Mm. Um, and I took a, a view at that time that I thought I could do both. And you upstart. To, I know, <laughs> ludicrous. Uh, but Mark, yeah, it's really interesting you mentioning that. I don't, that's right on the edge of my memory. But you're absolutely right. We did get that letter, and fortunately, my form got better when I was at university. So I got selected, and I managed to combine the two. And it was it was the moment that nobody expected to happen, least of all you, when in 1991 you were playing um, at the opening Czechoslovakia, as was, and you were. It's like 500 to one. 
and you won it. Yeah, that's right. Gosh, yes, you're, you're absolutely. You know, this is the first time I've been asked about these things for 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 so many years. But um, February 1991. So this would have been like a month and a half after I'd got my offer from Oxford, yeah. and maybe eight months before I actually started there. I turned up at the Czech Open, um, no chance of winning. I mean, this was a proper, fully-fledged international competition, but mm. I've had the, really the, the weekend of my life. I don't think I ever played as well a, again. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I managed to win the competition, and that was a huge leap um, from somebody who was near the top of the national rankings but still a bit of an also-ran in the international arena right into the mainstream. So there you were, sort of on, on the edges, made this decision, got into Oxford of all places. Then you win this competition. So then alongside your degree, you start getting picked regularly for the England team. And during your time at university, just to skate over this small achievement, you become England number one and get a first at Oxford as well. It worked out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> it, it worked out. And can I, you know, I think the, the, the real secret for me of being able to combine those two things was that I love the table tennis, but, you know, in some ways I love the studying even more. And they were a wonderful escape from each other. Mm. I remember at the Olympics in Barcelona at the end of my first year at um, Oxford, I'd, you know, go and train in, in the um, competition venue, go back to the village, the athlete's village, and I'd pull out, you know, J.K. Galbraith or Plato or something of that kind. And it was just a lovely balance. You know, if I lost a big match, I could take solace in reading philosophy. And if I was getting too sort of in-depth with my philosophy, I could go off and go for a run or have a really intense training session. Mm. During this amazing time in your life, national and international success, what did it feel like to win? Winning is, I mean, I think the deepest thing that I can say is vindication. Vindication. I've put in this effort. I've struggled over these hours. I've turned up at the competition. I've done my preparation. I've thought about my opponent. I've come up with a tactical plan and I've delivered. I've won. It's a wonderful sense of vindication. And, you know, with the best victories of all, they do leave a lingering satisfaction. Wow, I did it. Look, if we end the interview here, it's happy ending, isn't it? You've achieved incredible success, both in your academic career today and in your sporting career. And yet then something happened which, which, which it, would it be too strong to say changed you as a person? No, I don't think that would be too strong. And what happened? in the year 2000, was the Sydney Olympics. Yeah, so this was, this, this was a transformative moment in my life for all sorts of reasons. But there's no question that I built up for that competition with more intensity, more motivation, more enthusiasm than any other competition in my life. Why? You know, we what, had, well, what? we had huge funding. A lot of money had come into sport because of the lottery. So I had a full-time coach. There was a nutritionist, a physiologist. When we went to the Gold Coast for the training camp, two sparring partners flew out, one from Denmark, one from the UK, just to train with me in the build-up to us going into the village wow. itself. We had a um, a venue on the Gold Coast where the floor was the same as it would be in the competition venue. You know, all of my energy and my passion, everything was focused almost pathologically on trying to win a medal in Sydney. Mm. And um, 
I remember just before going out to play Peter Franz from Germany, who was my uh, first round opponent, the venue manager in Sydney, a lovely guy called Neil, said, you know what, this is going out live on the BBC. And I thought of Pete Chart as my first coach watching back at home. I knew my parents would be glued to the screen, you know, two of my great supporters, my brother, who had been so influential in my progression in table tennis, and my coach, who was trying to inspire me, said, you know what, this is where it counts. What happens over the course of the next 40 minutes will determine whether the last four years were a waste of time or not. Wow. And he was, I'll tell you what, he was really trying to motivate me. But, you know, the pre- I started feeling the pressure. My heart started racing. And I looked behind the curtain before I stepped out onto the table. I could see Union Jacks. And um, there was this incredible buzz. And to cut a long story short, I choked. I got under the lights and I fell apart. The, when the first ball was struck towards me, or the second ball, I remember hitting my return, and it was a pretty easy shot to play, and it missed the table by two metres. Wow. And it was basically this breakdown that sometimes occurs under pressure. You know, people who don't play sport will be able to relate to it. When you give a speech and you suddenly can't talk or you've got a job interview, you know the answer, but your mind blanks. But at the time, it was horrific. How did it physically feel when you were there under the lights? Yeah, it's it's surreal. It's hyper-vivid. It's catastrophic in the sense that you are confused and your desire to rectify it is overwhelming but there's very little that you can do i always find if something awful happens the moment it happens the moment after it happens it seems so unreal it's actually the next morning Mm. in those couple of seconds between opening your eyes and your brain's engaging Mm. and then the reality and the memory drops and that it's almost unbearable sometimes. You go, oh, my Lord, it happened. Yeah, that, well, I can relate completely to that. Every morning, I think, for, for weeks to come, I, I, there was that, that horrific moment. What's left? What do I do now? You know, the Olympic ambition's gone, but you haven't got a medal. All you've got are very uh, bitter memories. Could you talk about it straight afterwards with with those close to you at all? Or, or did you just try and pretend that didn't happen? For a while, complete denial. I would wake up, have that experience and try and get on with something else. And, and actually, um, you know, I threw myself into politics for a while. I stood for Labour in the 2001 general election in, in Wokingham. You know, I cared very much about politics and I really wanted to become a member of parliament at that time. I'm mm. not saying that it was just an escape but it certainly offered an escape route psychologically and, and it was quite cathartic at the time. But frankly, no, it was difficult to open up and, and difficult to share what I'd experienced because, it, as you say, it was such a, um, a challenge to my self-identity that it was very difficult to talk about it. How did you move into that arena and how did you start to discover that by talking about it was actually the way not just to get over it, but to turn it into a positive experience? Well, I, I realised, I think, that getting nervous is quite a common human experience. And actually, if you talk to almost anyone who goes into what they would describe as a potentially life-changing situation, a sliding doors moment, you know, a big speech, a job interview, an Olympic final, whatever, <laughs> nerves are quite a common thing. And so I thought, you know what, it's not so unusual 
to be intimidated and to be nervous. The question is, why did I break down so badly? And what strategies might I use in the future? And I suddenly thought, you know what? I don't think this has been analysed. I don't think it's been deconstructed. Certainly not as much as it could be. And I threw myself into trying to understand intellectually what had happened to me experientially, as it were, in Sydney. If you think about it, a weakness is a fant- it's like a guilt-edged opportunity to create a marginal gain. You know, if you're weak at something, why not go and find out how to address that weakness and grow? The more defensive we are, the more we block it out, the less we're likely to grow. And I think that is a very deep, profound problem in our, in our world. And I have to say, I think that is the distinctive feature of successful institutions from uh, Google to aviation. They're constantly seeking to learn. They don't see weaknesses as a reason to hide or become defensive, but as an opportunity to grow. And that psychological stance, I think, is the distinctive feature of, of greatness. Did you recover from Sydney? Did you recover from your, your failure? I, th- I think, and I, you know, I don't want to um, jump the gun or sound immodest, I think that I did. I think really trying to figure out what went wrong and what an opportunity to figure it out, given that I'd fallen apart so very badly, I think I did develop strategies. And today, I put those strategies into operation when I'm under pressure, when I'm nervous. And I'm nervous a lot. You know, I do quite a few things that take me outside my comfort zone. Um, And that experience in Sydney has had a hugely beneficial uh, effect on my future life and has helped me talk to other people about how to deal with their nerves. Can you explain about that? Well, so I think it can be quite personal. But Mm. if you imagine, so, so let me take you to your equivalent of standing outside the arena about to play in an Olympic contest. What's the first thing that goes through your mind if if you're getting particularly anxious? Well, the first thing that goes through your mind is, oh, my goodness, what if I lose? (laughs) And then you think, well, actually, if I lose, I'm going to lose my lottery funding. And if I lose my lottery funding, I'm going to struggle to pay my mortgage on the flat that I've just bought. And if I don't pay the mortgage on the flat that I've just bought, I'm going to have to move out. And if I don't have my own place, my girlfriend's going to leave me. And if my girlfriend leaves me, then... Well, my parents are desperately after grandchildren. They're probably going to disown me. And if my girlfriend's left me, I'm not living in the... And yeah, I'm going to turn to alcohol. You're about to play the most important match of your life. And in your mind, you're living in a cardboard box, drinking alcohol at the local roundabout. Do you know what I mean? You know, that escalation of anxiety... It's enough you, to make anyone not walk through the door. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Or just to freeze and not to be able to deliver. Um, it's terrifying. And it's so easy. It's a very common response, psychological escalation. Um, and the way to combat it is to attack. You know, so in, you know, as you're going down this, this chain of, of, of events in your own mind, cut them out. And um, it involves two things, I think. One thing, to go back to something that you said to, firstly, recognise that this is quite a common response. That takes a bit of the edge off it to say, hang on a second, I know what's going on here. This is a perfectly common response to anxiety and nerves. I'm, I'm sort of overdoing it. That, that's one thing that helps. I think the other thing is to say, instead of in your own mind going, what if I lose? That leads to that, that leads to that. It's a what if, what if, what if, what if. You say to yourself, whatever happens, win or lose, there is something that I can nevertheless hold on to. Now, in my case, and this will sound perhaps quite glib, 
but has, has really helped me a lot. I say to myself, win or lose, my parents will still love me. Now, my parents regard this as a slightly optimistic uh, claim. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it, those trigger words provide you with the reassur- provide you with reassurance you said earlier on about if you had been able to if you'd been able to wave that magic wand and edit out from your life what had happened to you in sydney you would have would you still do that now no definitely not i th- i think that capacity we have to edit out all the failures and to create narratives that are just constant successes are one of the you know narratives in our mind and our memories and our identity um really undermines our capacity to deal with future difficulties. And I think that it is important to not only remember your failures, but to reflect upon what you learned from them and how they allowed you to grow. The nine-year-old you stood in your garage in Reading, full of hope and enthusiasm, holding his table tennis bat ready to play his brother for the 800th hour (laughs) that year. Knowing how then you felt stood in front of the world at Sydney. How can you tell that nine-year-old not to be afraid of that? Oh, wow. Um, Gosh, I think I would say to that nine-year-old, life's a fascinating journey. And Sydney, amongst other things in my life, have, have presented huge challenges but that is absolutely what life and learning is about. Because the lessons of defeat are much more precious than the lessons of success. Matthew Syed was talking to me, Sam Walker. You've been listening to What Goes On Here. Coming up on Season 2, Episode 1, Stephanie. There's the guilt and the purging and you feel almost disgusted with yourself a little bit. And I just felt that I couldn't run away from this anymore. It would not go away.